Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur. Joining me in studio is Easton White, a visiting grad student doing his PhD in biology. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. First of all, what does it mean to be a visiting grad student? So essentially, I got an opportunity through the Fulbright program, which mm-hmm. is an exchange program between the U.S. and other countries. So basically, I came here for one year of my PhD work um, to basically study under a professor here. And why uh, why UVic in particular? Um, it was mainly because of a professor named Julia Baum in the biology department mm-hmm. who works on um, very similar areas to what I was working on in California. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about what you were working on and what your PhD is all about. Um, I, mm-hmm. Yeah, so very general. Um, I'm really interested in how I can apply different mathematical and statistical tools um, in order to answer various bio- biological problems. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, I'm interested in how how we can use those tools to figure out what's basically driving populations of animals. So mm. you look at, at whatever animal population you're interested in, what is driving the fluctuations we might see? Why does it increase? Why does it decrease? And what causes that? Mm-hmm. And are you interested in one particular animal? Um, not really, actually, which is, okay. uh, which is a bit strange. A lot of people um, usually find an animal that they really are interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked on various animals, and I've been pretty fortunate in that. Um, right now, my work here is actually looking at sharks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of been more of my focus lately. Um, but I've worked on um, things like the American pika, which is a small little mammal that lives in the mountains. I've worked on beetles. I've worked on wolves and moose. So hmm. kind of all over the place. But uh, right now, I'm more in the marine setting and mostly focused on sharks. Mm-hmm. So. so why are you interested in the way animals move around? It's kind of um, kind of twofold. So one, there's... Um, the scientific question of just what drives these animals' populations to increase, decrease, and what is it about their environment that interacts with the animals that um, can cause these fluctuations in the population size. Um, but also from a human perspective, if we wanted to look at something like fisheries, if we, if we can understand what drives a fish population to increase or decrease, we can actually fish more or fish sustainably uh, mm-hmm. in the future. So we can actually use mathemat- mathematics and statistics to predict how much we should be able to fish um, in any given year. And mm-hmm. then we can do it in a much more sustainable manner. Mm-hmm. Um, one that's obviously for um, economic gain and for social gain of being able to eat something. Uh, but then there's also the conservation side of it, which is kind of what I'm dealing with now with sharks, is saying what kind of pressures can sharks take um, in regards to fishing or other human-induced activities? Um, and then what can we do to kind of mitigate some of those um, effects that are actually hurting shark, shark populations. Mm-hmm. And then we can actually work on trying to conserve um, sharks or other animals that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. So. Your research in particular seems like it will be fairly charged in that, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of grad students. Some mm-hmm. people are doing things that are totally self-contained that are, you know, pretty conceptual and don't necessarily impact 
uh, anything like politically say whereas the stuff that you're looking at seems like is this directly involved in a lot of you know current affairs and stuff that's happening right now around us like politics i mean you look at the the, the salmon here in bc is such a mm-hmm. huge issue and it's very charged with like economics and politics and things like that how does that affect you when you're doing your research do you just block all that out and focus on what you're doing or does that ever seep into what you're doing it's certainly something that you have to be aware of because everyone has your biases of what they're interested in and um, what they're interested in on an outside of a scientific perspective. But I definitely try to block that out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, to me, I don't really, I don't have anything invested in what the outcomes might be as far as um, conservation outcomes or management outcomes. I want to get get it right scientifically mm-hmm. and then make um, recommendations based on what the science says to policymakers and conservation um, conservationists. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not something where I want to advocate a certain policy. I just want to tell people um, what the what. If you do this policy, this might happen. If you go with this decision, this might happen. Give them lots of options, and then basically explain from a scientific perspective what would happen. But I'm certainly not one to advocate a certain position. It's just more of trying to inform other people who are actually in the position to make decisions. Mm-hmm. So. Can you talk a bit about how how you actually do this research? You want to use mm-hmm. math to and apply it to the way animals move around. So how does that yep. work? It seems like there are patterns with animals, but yep. it would be hard to do that. Let's take an example. So let's say if you wanted to study fish populations in the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. and you wanted to figure out what has been happening over the last 50 years to those populations and then try to predict forward. Mm-hmm. Well, in a classic like scientific approach would be let's set up an experiment um, and we'll have multiple different um, types of a control and different experimental setups. And then we we'll run this experiment and then figure out what happens. And then use that in some scientific um, decisions. All right. And then relate that to conservation and management. Um, but if you want to say, let's study the Pacific Ocean. Well, you can't exactly get four, five, ten Pacific Oceans that basically have replicates in a study. Mm-hmm. So you just can't do some, some experiments in the classical scientific um, scientific method approach of doing an experiment and then seeing what happens. So what you can do is you can design a mathematical model, um, which is basically just a series of equations, some type of logical framework, where you can say, okay, I have this Pacific Ocean, I can put this into a mathematical framework, and then I can use that framework to basically simulate and make Pacific Oceans on a computer, mm-hmm. and then basically test and see what happens, and basically then do experiments with this model that I then have over the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Then I can project forward from that model to basically figure out what is going on with the Pacific Ocean in that case. Hmm. So it really allows you to do things that you just can't normally do in the field. Um, it could be things that are unethical. So if you wanted to study, let's say, um, um, a common one is looking at like infectious disease in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just go around giving people infectious diseases and then calling that a good experiment. It just doesn't work, right? right. So you, in that case, you might set up a mathematical model in that case and then predict what would happen if um, a di- way a disease might spread in a population or something like that. So did you have to develop the, um, I guess, the math itself yeah. for this? Or was this something that you're, you're already drawing upon to create these simulations? Yeah, a lot of it is already drawn upon from other fields. So mm-hmm. um, applied math has lots of, has been working on lots of these problems. Um, so a lot of um, what I've done in the past has been using stuff from applied mathematics and from statistics and then using that in uh, an ecological setting. Um, and plus there's already um, other ecologists who are using these models as well. Um, so for the most part, a lot of it is there. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been some cases in my career that 
there's been a situation where no one had developed the model for that type of population or system before. So then I had to develop my own um, model and then use that to predict what was going on. Hmm. So how long? Uh, so you're up here for a year at UVic, yep. is that right? Yep. Uh, why are you studying sharks here? It seems like it's I, I don't know. I guess yeah. we have some sharks, but, you know, it doesn't seem like a shark capital or anything. Yeah. So it's uh, there's definitely sharks around B.C., mm-hmm. um, Interesting enough, I'm not actually studying sharks from BC, which is kind of odd. Right. So the real reason I came here to work with Julie is because she has a um, one a good knowledge of sharks in general, but also she really has um, developed a lot of tools in the statistical side of things to be able to analyze shark population data. Hmm. So I'm actually looking at sharks um, from Costa Rica. Hmm. Um, we have this data set from Costa Rica, and I'm using that, working with Julia more on the statistics and using the tools there and then applying those to um, the data set we have from Costa Rica. Mm. And what do you want to find out about them, how, how they move around Costa Rica? Um, so for this one, we're not really too interested in the actual movement of the sharks. Mm-hmm. We're actually just interested in how many sharks there are and of what species are present. Right. Um, so what we have is we have a, um, there's an island off of Costa Rica. It's about 550 kilometers um, off of Costa Rica, so it's quite far. And this is an island that's world known renowned by divers and conservation biologists and scientists as being a hot spot for sharks. So it's called Cocos Island. It's a small little island off in the Pacific, um, but there's um, sharks and stingrays and big schools of fish everywhere. It's a really beautiful place to dive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's known for being a kind of a mecca for shark and, sh- and people who are interested in looking at sharks. Um, so essentially what we have is that a dive company has been diving there for the last 20 years or so, taking divers out there from the mainland and going out diving. Um, and essentially what they did is they, every single dive that they would go on, they would count how many sharks of each species there were. Hmm. And so for, we have a 20-year-long data set of what sharks are present on each dive, and they were doing a couple hundred to a thousand dives a year of this company. Um, and so basically we have this very long data set of what sharks are there and in what abundance as well. Mm-hmm. So basically, we want to figure out one. I mean, the first question is just how many sharks are there, and are populations of sharks there increasing or decreasing? Um, and then we can also look at things like uh, what envi- what does the environment um, have to do with how what's what is the size of a shark population? So does something like water temperature or the visibility of the water? How do these things affect how many sharks there are um, for certain species at a study site? Mm-hmm. So. Wow. Have you ever gone to Coco's Island? Um, I did. I actually made it out there in November of mm-hmm. last year. Um, and yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. Did you see some sharks? Saw lots of sharks. Mm-hmm. So some of the main ones there are hammerhead sharks. Mm-hmm. We saw tiger sharks. We saw Galapagos sharks, white tip sharks, mm-hmm. um, a number of stingrays like manta rays and mobula rays. Um, so yeah, it was an unbelievable sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that actually produces somewhat of a problem um, at Coco's. So it was beautiful diving. Everyone there had a great time. But this is what we call shifting baselines. So basically, people go there every year and say, this is the best diving in the world. And arguably, it is some of the best diving in the world. The problem is, everyone says that every year. So if populations are declining there, mm-hmm. and no one really notices because it always appears to be really, really good because it's, it is a good dive site. If populations are declining, you don't really notice it because it's such a great spot to dive anyway, even if populations are low because you don't know what the highs used to look like. Yeah. People who haven't been diving there um, tw- for 20 straight years, it's usually different divers each year. Mm-hmm. So unless you're diving for 20 straight years, you wouldn't really be able to recognize that 
maybe this population of this species has been declining or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so that actually creates a big problem. Um, so what we're trying to do with this data set is kind of reestablish that baseline and say, okay, what were the populations like 20 years ago and how do those compare to the today? Because even though the diving is beautiful today, maybe it's not anywhere near what it was 20 years ago. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. So have you made headway? Have you gotten to that point yet where you're sort of figuring that out? Yeah, so a lot of it um, so far has been basically um, using various statistical tools to f figure out um, are these populations declining? Are they increasing? What's going on? So we have 12 species total of sharks and rays in our data set. And what we're finding is that nine out of the 12 species in the data set have actually seen dramatic declines. Um, mm. In about 20 years, they've seen declines ranging between about 40 and 80%. Mm. So these are quite large declines. Um, and for the majority of the species, um, some of the iconic ones like hammerhead sharks, have seen pretty large declines in 20 years. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any data before that, um, but within 20 years, yeah, it's declined quite a bit. Hmm. And this is important because um, Cocos Island is actually a marine protected area, mm -hmm. so there's no fishing actually allowed at Cocos Island. And it's been like that for about two decades now. Hmm. So it's interesting that all these populations of sharks have been declining for so long, even though it's a marine protected area. Hmm. And it's actually what some people would call the, one of the best marine protected areas in the world. But that being said, populations are still declining, um, even, even with this, this marine protected area in place. So this says that one, either fishing is happening outside of the marine protect, protected area, which certainly is occurring, mm -hmm. that the marine, marine protected area only goes out there a certain distance around the island, and fishing's a lot everywhere else be, outside of that. Plus, we also know that there's illegal fishing that happens within the islands uh, marine protect, protected waters. So these together could be driving some of the declines we're actually seeing. Hmm. Um, and we know that um, even though humans, we can draw a map or a line on a map and say this is the protected area, mm -hmm. sharks don't exactly know where that line is, right? Yeah. So this is a big problem where, one, if you have different countries with different marine protected areas, how do we kind of link these protected areas up in mm. order to conserve animals that move a lot like sharks or dolphins or whales or turtles or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So they could travel within that protected area. Yeah, exactly. And they could mm. go kind of from protected area to protected area. And this is what people have been trying to propose now. But it's also a problem of working with multiple countries and trying to get um, some of this um, policy through. It's, it, it can be quite difficult. Mm. So, How much longer do you have uh, before you complete your PhD? So I actually still have uh, about four more years. Wow. So I'm kind of just at the initial part of my PhD. Right. Um, so yeah, so it's an initial work, um, and it's um, unclear if I'll be continuing working on this particular project for my PhD. I'll probably jump between projects, but mm -hmm. it'll all be related to yeah, using these math and statistical tools that answer questions about populations of animals. Mm -hmm. After this year, do you go back to University of California? Yep. So in uh, June, actually, I'll be mm -hmm. done at UVic, mm -hmm. and then I'll go back to University of California in Davis um, starting in the fall. Wow. Um, and then I'll have a couple more years there, um, taking a couple more classes, um, but really getting into my research there. Hmm. So. How did you become interested in this? Did you do biology all through your undergrad and or math or what, uh, what yeah, led you to this point? Yeah, it's a bit odd. So um, I actually grew up in Arizona, so the middle mm -hmm. of the desert. Mm -hmm. um, there's no ocean around, um, which obviously makes it hard if you want to study sharks one day. Um, but growing up, um, I had a big influence from my father who was actually quite interested in scuba diving and marine biology in general, but he never pursued it as a um, career, just kind of a hobby to go scuba diving and such. Uh, where did he go scuba diving? 
evening in yeah. Arizona. So he, he would go in Arizona and like lakes and like <laughs> right, yeah. uh, ponds kind of thing. But he would also try to go down to Mexico or California. Yeah, okay. Um, some like bigger road trips and such. But um, he got me diving when I was about six years old. Wow. I was quite young. Um, and it was one of those things where I would dive with my dad and then we'd also like watch Discovery Channel and um, different programs late at night on... I remember watching Steve Irwin on mm. um, his programs and watching Bill Nye and some of these other shows. So I was certainly interested in uh, marine biology. Um, and then when I got to college, um, I was still interested in biology, but I wasn't really sure what that really meant. I thought, well, if you want to be a marine biologist, that means you work for Nat Geo and you do films or you work at a zoo or something like that. Right. And then it wasn't until taking a couple of classes in college and I had a I was really fortunate to have a professor named John Nagy um, at a community college in Arizona. Um, basically, um, took me under his wing in, in uh, lots of ways and explained how um, mathematical models could be used in biology. Hmm. And kind of started putting all these courses together, um, putting together biology and chemistry and math kind of came together for me um, to understand how, how all these things were connected. Um, and then I started, so I started off as just a, pure biology major mm -hmm. and then I quickly t added a math minor as well and I actually ended up taking about half biology and half ma mathematics courses in my undergrad hmm. um, and that's kind of con continued into grad school as well hmm. yeah it, is this where you when you uh when you started getting interested mm -hmm. in combining math and biology yeah. is this where you saw yourself eventually heading um kind of it was mm -hmm. um it was a bit unclear at first where exactly I was going um I definitely started more in mathematics and biology, and then I've also kind of drifted now into like statistics and computer science, and all these things kind of just start linking together, and you mm -hmm. kind of start learning tools from all uh, these different areas, and it's very interesting to kind of be in this, doing this interdisciplinary work. Mm. Um, it could be, yeah, it could be interesting to be in so many different departments and at any given time, so. Oh yeah, do you have a, a good network then, I guess, cross campus with all the different yeah, departments I mean, so and I stuff? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm housed in the biology department, but I'm I probably spend a good chunk of my time in statistics and mathematics, hmm. um, talking to people in geography because there's also, also stuff to do um, if you're working with like animal movement. Um, there's a lot of stuff with mapping and spatial statistics. Um, yeah, so there's a lots of overlap between all these areas, and it's yeah, it's it's really cool to be um, to be able to jump between these areas. Mm -hmm. And really, the 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 background that allows me to do that is mathematics because all these areas use mathematics in some way. That's kind of the common language between all these fields. Mm -hmm. So, um, this is I've been doing a lot of interviews today mm -hmm. for uh, Beyond the Jargon, and yep. this is second. You're the second person I've talked to about using math in this sort of applied way. I talked mm -hmm. to someone who's uh, developing lace patterns uh, through math equate or mathematical models, mm -hmm. um, and then there's like this sort of biomedical application yep. for them. It seems like. Well, I'm not being a particularly mathematical person myself. Do you think that these mathematical models are being tapped into more since, you know, trying to do these larger experiments like replicating the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. Is this a trend or has this always existed? Um, it's certainly always, it's been there for a while, mm -hmm. um, being able to use these equations. Um, definitely now with as uh, computing power has, has increased quite a bit, mm. we can do a lot more simulation-based things where we can simulate the whole Pacific Ocean. Or the bigger thing right now is looking at global climate change. Mm. So if you want to make predictions on global climate change, you obviously can't get multiple Earths to do an experiment on. Um, so in that case, climate modeling, um, the same type of modeling that you might do for like weather forecast modeling um, is what people would use to basically make predictions. Mm. Um, so I think it's combined with that. So doing 
the yeah computer computing has definitely increased quite a bit, and then the, definitely the drive by um, people who are in policy or, or conservation or management to say we need predictive power to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So then you, we develop these models to try to give some type of predictive power and to be able to give them some more tools to be able to uh, make decisions more effectively. Is it difficult or stressful to sort of deliver on that demand for predictive power? It seems like nobody ever really wants to say, oh yeah, I can predict without, you know, yeah. with certainty that this will happen, especially when it uh, is concerning larger things like conservation yep. or climate change. Yeah, so this is definitely where, uh, definitely a point where I don't try to, uh, if I get some output of a model, mm-hmm. I'll gladly tell um, some, a decision maker, here's what would happen if you implement this decision. But here's, here's the possible um, range of error in my prediction type mm-hmm. of thing. So giving people not only predictions, but also how confident am I in these predictions? And then making multiple predictions and saying, well, you can do this with this confidence or this with this confidence. Um, so I think if you come about it with that approach, um, I think that can certainly make it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there is, there is pressure um, from one, like these different groups of making decisions. But also if you want to, do any type of applied work, you obviously want to be able to produce a product, right? So if you want to get funding to do some work, um, you certainly have to uh, explain what, how is it going to be useful. And one of those things is being able to predict things and predict what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and more general than that, science in general is all about um, building theory, really, building up um, um, not only a set of facts, but also how we use those facts and how those facts can be predictive. And it's not really until we can actually predict things that we can really say a theory is doing a good job of explaining something. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the theory of evolution. Initially, it's proposed by Darwin um, in the late 1800s, and then it's, it sits around for a bit, but it's, it's not really a good theory until it's been tested and tried and then being able to predict different things. That's when we can really say that a theory is, is a good theory or not, is when it's able to predict things that um, we see in nature. Hmm. So you mentioned that this might not be your project throughout your entire mm-hmm. PhD. Do you anticipate any kind of change or you're looking at a different kind of animal or doing something completely different? Um, yeah, so I think it'll be uh, very related as far as um, using mathematics and statistics. Um, on. I'll probably focus on animals once again, um, but I'm not really sure on what questions. I'm, I'm, the problem is I'm interested in too many questions. This right. is often a thing um, with scientists. They're interested in too many things. Um, that's certainly the case for me. So I think... Um, it could end up being something where um, I have more of an evolutionary focus and a uh, ecological focus. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that I'm interested in is how how do certain traits evolve that we see in organisms. Hmm. So something like um, dispersal, an animal's ability to move around in its environment. How does dispersal, why do some animals move a lot and some, why do some animals move very little? So how does something like that evolve for an animal? How do they, how does it, um, a trait like that evolve? Or how does a trait um, we see in some species of like beetles and salamanders, how do, why does a trait like cannibalism, so eating other organisms in your species, how does that evolve? Mm-hmm. Like that makes no sense to be able to just eating other animals of the same species. Right. So how does something like that evolve in a, in a species? So I'd be pretty interested in looking at questions like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of mathematics um, that underlines a lot of that work. Mm-hmm. So, so you'd be yeah. using a similar thing, using those models to look at th- that kind of behavior, those traits? Yeah, so it's something where, um, in particular, one project I worked on a little while ago, I was looking at the American pika, so the small little mammal that lives 
up on mountains in the Rockies and um, down through the Sierra Nevadas in the States. Um, but basically, we were looking at them in just an ecological context of so trying to understand what drives the populations of pikas to increase or decrease. So we're looking at that. Well, then we want to look at the evolutionary questions of how um, how does movement, how does dispersal evolve for, for pikas? Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, we notice that uh, pikas in general don't disperse or move very much, um, but once one population moved a whole lot. So why does that one population of pikas, even though it's the same species, why do they move a whole lot? Mm-hmm. So basically, we took this same exact um, mathematical model that we use for e- ecological studies, added a few twists to it, and then we were able to look at how something like dis- dispersal or any trait we're interested in, how does that evolve in the population? Hmm. So it's a lot of the same mathematics with just a few twists here and there, um, and you can answer very different questions. Hmm. So. Um. Yeah, that's neat that you can use a lot of the same math without yeah. and just without developing something totally new for evolutionary yeah. traits. Uh, yeah, in relation to that, um, actually my advisor in undergrad, so he had two projects going on kind of at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and one project was what I was doing working on pikas. Um, and then another project was actually working on cancer cells, hmm. um, which you would think have very little relation to each other, right? So looking at cancer in humans specifically. So... What you can actually do is use the same mathematics. One, we used it to look at how something evolves in pikas. Mm-hmm. But you can also look at it to see how cancer cells within a tumor actually evolve. And then you can look at things like, well, if a c- cancer cell evolves this way, can we force it to evolve in a certain direction that would actually benefit humans? So can we force it to basically um, get smaller? Can we force it to become um, less harmful to humans? Something like that. We can actually use evolution in our favor in that case. Hmm. But it's really interesting to see the parallel of using the same exact mathematics in two different setups um, that are very, very different. Um, and then using it in the same setups and then being able to make predictions and things that matter to people in real life. Hmm. So. It can't all be smooth sailing, though. Do you ever, what kind of like challenges and roadblocks do you come in, in contact with? Yeah, so one is, I mean, it's, it can be difficult to be in all these different areas at once, right? So you have to be a pika expert and a shark expert and someone who knows a lot about statistics and mapping and mathematics so mm-hmm. it can certainly be difficult one um just jumping between these areas because you can't know it all right right um, so that's where collaboration is really important um so without collaboration doing this inter- type of interdisciplinary work just would not be feasible um, so i think certainly that one just not not having enough time to know all of mathematics um is really um difficult sometimes so you work with other mathematicians or other statisticians that know much more than I do. Um, so that's certainly, yeah, one of the challenges. And then actually just doing the work itself um, can obviously be challenging. Anything you, you would do in science of actually building models, making predictions, um, these things are not um, trivial by any means of trying to build some type of mathematical framework um, that allows you to predict something about what you're studying. Hmm. Um, so actually, yeah, doing the math itself and then building simulations from that um, can sometimes be difficult, can, um, can lead you down dead ends, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of have to just keep pushing forward, for mm-hmm. sure. Have you had any um, unexpected or surprising results from the research you're doing, either with the pikas or the sharks? or? Yeah, so on this um, the most recent project we're working on at Cocos Island, mm-hmm. um, I said that 9 out of the 12 species of shark have seen declines. Um, what I failed to mention was that 3 of the 12 species are actually increasing. Oh, um, and this is weird. Uh, we don't know why this is. Hmm. Um, 
we have a number of different hypotheses of why that might be happening. Mm-hmm. It might be something where um, some, as some shark species decline, some other ones are taking over, kind of filling that space that is then left by those species. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that something like that could be the case. Uh, it could be a shifting uh, shift of the prey items that are present. Um, it could be that the marine pro- protected area is actually working for those species. Mm. Um, so that could be the situation. Um, but yeah, that was it's. We're not really sure why that is, and we can't really do too much to figure that out with the current data that we have. Hmm. So we probably have to develop some further experiments or something else um, to try to figure out some of those answers. But yeah, we really don't have a good sense of why. Hmm. Why did n- nine species decline and then three species increase uh, when they should be all um, at risk from the same fishing pressure and everything else? Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite odd to have that happen. So we're definitely yeah, looking more into that. Does that strike you when you see something like that? Yeah. Do you does that strike you as something like, oh, I'm optimistic. Some of the species on Earth are not declining, or they're doing better, or are you yeah. just like coolly observing this as a as a detached scientist? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly hesitate a bit to be very excited, and some people will get quite excited and say, well, look at how good the marine protected area is doing. Um, but it could be saying something that's even worse. Um, so even though some species will be increasing, mm-hmm. that could be at fault from other species declining. Mm-hmm. So a famous case of this was actually in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, we had large species of shark were being fished out for 20, 30 years. And what happened was that smaller species of rays, uh, in particular cow nose rays, mm-hmm. which used to be predated upon by sharks, they increased in abundance quite a bit. Which people said, oh, that's great. Like rays are doing really well. Sharks not doing well, but like at least the rays are doing well. Mm-hmm. Well, then the rays did so well that they ended up eating all the scallops on the east coast of the U.S. So then all the scallops declined. Mm-hmm. Well, then once all the scallops decline, then that's going to affect the rays. They might decline. So you have these weird cycles that even though one species might be doing really well, um, in the background it might be saying that something else is doing something else is really messed up in your system. Mm-hmm. And you need to look into it into it further. Okay, we're almost out of time here. So I have one last question. Yeah. It's not very scientific, but okay. I'm just interested to know, yeah. do you get a chance to dive out here on uh, around Victoria? And is it very fulfilling? I mean, I've been diving a little bit out here, and I think I yeah. saw a big starfish and a rock cod. Yeah. So. Uh, I've actually never dove out here. Oh, okay. Um, I've dove in some of the kelp forests off of California, so a very similar environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've yet to make it out, out here, so mm-hmm. I definitely need to. Because I've heard, depending on where you go, it can be... Quite, yeah. quite awesome as far as some of the marine life. But yeah, I've yet to dive out here yeah. um, very much. One so, day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> you have until June, right? Yeah, exactly. I have until June. Then I'll have to get out by then. Uh, thank you so much for being my yeah. guest today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, visit our website, cfuv.uvic.ca. The music you heard today is from Solar Mass Collective Volume 2, the song BOC by Kimchi Kitty. Kimchi Kitty.